the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Apostolic succession paved the way to preserve the New Testament text. Welcome to another episode of Facts. Today we're doing a special segment on whether or not the early church gathered together, broke bread, prayed, confessed sin, read scripture, and worshipped the Lord on a Saturday or Sunday. Was it the Sabbath that was still being upheld by the church as instructed by the Jewish communities in the Old Testament, or was there a transition, or as some would say, a replacement or change that was made. Uh, there are Sabbatarians out there who would like to argue the fact that we should still be worshiping as Christians on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Uh, there are those in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. There's also Baptists, a part of a similar group like that. Uh, there's other sectarian groups that believe that you should worship on a Saturday itself, not Sunday as instructed by the New Testament in the early church, which we're going to look at in a minute. Some of the argumentation that is brought on this, and I want to read this uh, to you to kind of demonstrate where perspective is in the world of Sabbatarians. Where do the Sabbatarians place the idea of worship, the day, uh, what happened to the Sabbath once Jesus came? I mean, after all, it's in the Ten Commandments, a moral aspect of the law that we should uh, honor the Sabbath day. So how do we do that if it's just been replaced? I mean, does that mean the rest of the Ten Commandments have been replaced? What do we do with Sabbath? So we'll end this segment on what do we do with Sabbath, but we're going to show the arguments for why they believe Sabbath should be exalted and still followed as it relates to public worship and gatherings. And then I'm going to demonstrate how that's not the case scripturally and in New Testament transition very, very early on. And then we're going to look uh, again, following that in what do we do with Sabbath today? That's going to be the order of this segment. But going into the discussion, I was reading a correspondence between two individuals who were defending uh, Sabbatarian beliefs, and then one that was rejecting it. And they go on to explain that the Catholic Church had created the transferring from Sabbath of Saturday to Sunday, which I find ironic because when they think of the Catholic Church, they're typically talking about something that Rome did. And that's exactly what they go on to, to, to point out because they bring in Constantine and the change of this, he says that the change is actually a pagan tradition. Now, let me just uh, pause right here and, and, and let me actually acknowledge some validity to what's being said by the Sabbatarian here. Uh, when you're dealing with Constantine, he was politically gaining Christian movement into the Roman Empire. He, now, he was claiming to be one, waited till death for baptism, uh, people ask me all the time, do you think Constantine was sincere Christian? I don't. Um, I think that there were goods and bads to Constantine's legalization, uh, continuing to pursue uh, the legalization of Christianity. We know at the Edict of Milan, 
Christianity was made legal. Uh, then he also brought in uh, councils. He legalized libraries. There were so many things that Constantine did that was good for Christianity. But he did bring in pagan elements and tried to marry the church to the state of Rome. And in doing so, there were contaminations that transferred into the church. So I just I want to be honest about that because I don't want to just brush the guy off and say he's nonsensically making this stuff up. There's no evidence for that. Yes, Constantine did uh, bring about levels of paganism into Christianity. Specifically, I would say that that continued down into the calendar acknowledgments. But just going into this, he says that it has pagan origins because Constantine was a sun worshiper, S-U-N, and made the first Sunday law pertaining to worship on March 7th, 321 A.D. He, say, he states, note that Constantine had been a worshiper of the sun, and he called the day the venerable day of the sun god. So you're actually not honoring God of heaven by observing Sunday. So to do this, you're violating God's law of not just the Sabbath law, but he's going on to argue that we are violating not just Sabbath, but also paganism and worshiping other gods. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. Now, if we had no New Testament precedents, we had no transition of understanding of the law and the way that it was functioning on the day, and we also had no trail of historical attestation to give us any kind of point of reference into what the apostles did, then I would actually lean to the side of the Sabbatarian and say they have a point. The problem is their point is null and void because they're stating that this origin of Sunday worship began in 321 AD. And if that were the case, we'd have a problem. The problem is that's not the reality of our situation. We see instances of this in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter number 20, verse number 7, Paul, speaking and ministering to those at Troas, goes on to say this. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them, continued his message until midnight. Now, we need to understand the idea of breaking of bread. This is a tradition that began right after Pentecost. Immediately, it began on Pentecost. Because when Peter had preached the sermon, people had repented and been baptized and come to the faith that Jesus died as the Messiah and that he resurrected from the dead, truly. But then it talks about what they did on that occasion as they continued on. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. So they came together. They would break bread, this concept of breaking bread, Eucharist. They were taking of the Lord's Supper. They were listening to the teaching of the apostles. And that began a new trend. We see that Luke recording that early on in Acts, and then by the end of Acts, we find the gathering of the apostles and the leaders and the church and the disciples coming together every Sunday to acknowledge this idea of Eucharist. We see it continued on as well. I mean, if you go to the book of 1 Corinthians, for example, in chapter number 16, Paul giving instruction here 
speaks saying, now concerning the collection for the saints in verse one, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So what is he doing? He's saying, look, I've given instruction that at your gatherings on the first day of the week to take up collections, specifically for the Jews, those that were being persecuted because he said he'd bear their gifts to Jerusalem, who are under a lot of persecution, distress. And he's giving instruction that they would continue on their gatherings to collect, that they would take an offering, if you would, and bring it as a love gift to those in Jerusalem. So why would he instruct Galatia and Corinth to do it on the first day of the week? Because the first day of the week was their gathering. Uh, John the Apostle, in the book of Revelation, chapter one, he was on the Lord's day, which became a very important term. We're going to see that term uh, echoed. And, and this is why I state folks, so many times on this program, it's in the intro as well, that we have to understand succession. We have to understand those that are trained by the apostles because they're not just giving us uh, some sort of cool connection. They're actually transferring the tradition and practices that they learn from the apostles themselves. In this same correspondence between the Sabbatarian and the individual who's defending Sunday worship, he makes the argument that in Revelation chapter 1, that all that was was the Apostle John in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And he agreed the Lord's Day is the first day of the week, and he even agreed that it is the resurrection day. I don't think anybody would differ on that. Even in the gospel, John explicitly states that on the first day of the week, the women came to the tomb, tombs empty, and that he had risen before the sun came up. Now, remember, remember this. There is a transition in Jewish day versus how we view Jewish day. Uh, sunrise uh, is a little bit different than how we understand it. I mean, we always have this idea that Jesus was resurrected at sunrise. No, no, no. John says that the tomb was already empty while it was yet dark on the first day of the week. So Sunday on a Jewish timeline begins Saturday sundown. So if we start days at midnight, so yesterday was Saturday, for example, uh, and on Saturday at midnight, it transitioned to Sunday. For a Jew, that would not have happened. Uh, the sun went down around 7, eh, 7.30-ish. I don't know the exact number, somewhere around 7.30 p.m. yesterday. That would have began Sunday for the Jew. So somewhere between sundown and sunrise, Jesus resurrected on Sunday, it could have been midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, 10 at night. We don't know. Uh, either way, it was considered the first day of the week, Sunday. Probably would have been slightly before sunrise based on the language there in John, but it's, it's too difficult to say one way or the other. But he had risen before the sun came up. It was the first day of the week. So again, none of them are arguing against Jesus resurrecting on the first day of the week. They're arguing against worship. But the thing is, the pattern began something interesting. The resurrection became the highlight of fulfillment. Everything Jesus said and did 
was validated on the resurrection. Everything that the Old Testament prophets had foretold was validated on the, re on the resurrection itself. Now, yes, the death and burial are instrumental. Paul makes that explicitly clear in 1 Corinthians 15. But if he had just died and was buried and the resurrection never happened, his death was, was meaningless. Nothing was accomplished. So when the resurrection brought finality, it changed the trajectory of history and the way that the early church was going to view him as their savior, both the atoning work and the resurrection. And so what ends up happening in the early church is they began to worship and acknowledge Christ on the day he actually resurrected. And they called it the Lord's Day. And that's where we see the early instance of that uh, very early on in the book of Revelation at the very end of the first century. In the book of Revelation, we see that he was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. So here, the Sabbatarian in the correspondence makes it clear that he agrees that Sunday, that's the first day of the week. But it doesn't say that John was having a personal worship. I agree. It does not explicitly say that that was the day the church was meeting. But why leave the term Lord's Day there? What is John doing by putting those terms in description about the function of the day? Why didn't you say the first day of the week? Well, it became a tradition moving forward. And we're going to look at these traditions in quotation where the earliest followers began to acknowledge the Lord's Day. And I mean at the same time John was alive. And I mean by people who knew John. And so again, if we are struggling, and I've said this over and over in this program, and I hope that we are building this kind of understanding. If we don't understand a meaning of a term or a verse or a idea in the New Testament scripture, we should never start with modern scholarship. We should never start with people 900 years or a thousand years, or 1200 years, you get the picture, all the way down to 2000 years later. When we are struggling with the earliest texts and their meaning, start with the earliest commentaries, homilies, and interpretations. Because they're closest. And specifically, if you can, find someone who knew the writer. And if, if they are around, did they actually mention the subject? And what do they say? Start at the earliest interpretations. So when the debate in this correspondence between the Sabbatarian and the one that wants to argue for Sunday worship became instrumental, it came down to Revelation chapter one and what John meant by that, which I don't think it should come down to that anyway. I, I just stated clearly in 1 Corinthians 16, Acts 20, we find the pattern all through Acts building to Acts 20. They were gathering on the first day of the week. One, for the purpose of the resurrection. Two, it corresponds with creation and new creation. God created on the first day, life, time. He changed the trajectory of history on the first day of the week. He did it again at the resurrection on the first day of the week. New life. Life and new life corresponds. But when we talk about the apostles and their tradition, we have early first century tradition that the first day of the week was the gathering in the Didache 14, which some want to argue the Didache is 
somewhere in the 70s. I, I beg to differ on the date, but I don't, I don't beg to differ on the first century criteria, but I do struggle to place it that early. I would place it in the 90s, early 90s, more than likely. At best, at best, somewhere in the 80s. But it states this, <clears throat> every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together, break bread, give thanksgiving after, after confessing your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. So here in the Didache, you find that the Lord's Day is the gathering of the saints. What are they doing? Breaking bread. Oh, that sounds familiar. Acts 2. Acts 20. Here's another church. Give thanksgiving. Again, corresponding with everything that we learned from Luke as he conveyed to us the motion and the function of the church on a Sunday. And they used the term that John used, the Lord's Day. So I actually think the term Lord's Day became more prolific at the end of the century. And it's possible the Johannine community is the one that coined the terminology. We can't prove it, but again, he's the only one in the biblical text that gives that idea of Sunday. We also have uh, in the epistle called the letter to Barnabas, the epistle of Barnabas, which it's not Barnabas, but it is early. Uh, someone to put that in the first century as well. I beg to differ once more. I think it's early second century. I do not think it's a first century document. But again, it's in keeping right around the time of the book of Revelation. And it mentions the eighth day being a new beginning. And that's important. It says we keep the eighth day with joy, the day also in which Jesus rose from the dead. So we have some correspondence here again around the same time referring to the eighth day being the new week, starting the newness. So you got Monday all the way down to Sunday, right? No, that's not how they did it. They did it this way. They started Sunday, day one, all the way down to Saturday, day seven, the seventh day. So an eighth day is the new beginning, which puts us back on Sunday. And if you were just confused about what the writer of this epistle is saying, he goes on to say the day in which Jesus rose again from the dead. So therefore, we do see, again, the acknowledgement of gathering and joy and celebration of the church around Sunday. This is not 321 AD. We're still in the first and earliest sections of the second century. Ignatius of Antioch, a very important disciple, though he's a bishop in line with the apostolic succession there in Antioch, he apparently was a disciple of John from all indications. And this is where I want to pause for a minute and go back to the succession statement I made. If we are struggling to understand what anybody meant by Lord's Day, if it wasn't clear enough in the Didache, how about somebody who knew John? If John's saying the Lord's Day, and all that means is, yes, he was on a Sunday, taken up in the Spirit, but that doesn't mean that's the day the church was gathering. Au contraire. Ignatius of Antioch said, those who are brought up in the ancient order, being the Jews, have come to possess a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day 
on which also our life has sprung up again in him by his death. So Jesus's resurrection is hinging the entire understanding of the first and second century church and those who knew John personally. So here's Ignatius, who's a disciple of John the Apostle, and he's telling us exactly what the definition of Lord's Day is. So this is how we do this is how we do biblical interpretation. If we're struggling with Revelation 1, we don't know what Revelation 1 means. We jump right in and say, did anybody who knew John give any indication of what John meant there? Oh, it just so happens. Ignatius did. He even goes into great detail to show that the ancient order of the Jews was to observe Saturday, Sabbath. But... In New Hope and New Life, the observance of the Lord's Day is a demonstration of newness of life from the dead. And so we awaited and rested and waited for this new hope. When the new hope came, God created a new creation as he did the old creation. The old creation was on a Sunday, first day of the week, and... With keeping with that concept, and by the way, don't take me to mean that so literally. I'm talking about the first day. That's how they pattern the seven days of the week. And we look at Sunday, it's creation day. And then we look at resurrection, it's on new creation day. So Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch defines clearly to us what the Lord's day meant in the mind of those who were around the same time John was alive, as does the Didache. Justin Martyr says, but Sunday is the day on which we hold our common assembly because it's the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. Are, do you hear it? He's referencing the Genesis 1 creation concept again. He goes on to say, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. So we have complete consistency with Ignatius, the letter and epistle of Barnabas, Justin Martyr. They're saying the same exact thing. Thing. And by the way, uh, Justin Martyr is around the mid-2nd uh, century. So we're, we're keeping this progression here. 1st century, early 2nd century, mid-2nd century, they're doing it again. This is way before 321. In the writings of Didascalia, we see the apostles further appointed. Catch it. The apostles appointed on the first day of the week. Let there be service and the reading of Holy Scripture. And the oblation, because on the first day of the week, our Lord rose from the place of the dead. And on the first day of the week, he arose upon the world. And on the first day of the week, he ascended into heaven. And on the first day of the week, he will appear at the last with the angels in heaven. Now, didascalia, the teaching of the apostles, is a later tradition into the third century. But within the third century teaching, it's stating that they were once again meeting on the first day of the week by appointment of the apostles themselves. And the reasoning is the same reason we learned from Justin Martyr, Ignatius, the letter of Barnabas. It's because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And it's when he created the earth. And it's when he recreated life. And it's when he ascended into heaven. And it goes on to believe that he's going to come back on the Lord's day. And the implication, by the way, is there because of Revelation that John was caught up on the Lord's day in the spirit to see the very things that he saw. So we don't know that to be true, but their perspective is Jesus is going to return on the Lord's day. Maybe he will. Who knows? Origin in the same time era here in the third century says, hence 
It is not possible that the day of rest after the Sabbath should have come into existence from the seventh day of our God. On the contrary, it is our Savior who, after the pattern of his own rest, caused us to be made in the likeness of his death, and hence also in the likeness of his resurrection. That's in his commentary of John. Now, Origen is, again, patterning the resurrection and the days. Uh, the Sabbath was there for a day of rest. Well, Jesus came and rested in his death on that Sabbath, but came alive on the first day of the week, a new creation. And we too have been patterned that we died with him and we rose with him. Therefore, our celebration is not on the day of death, but on the day of life. And that's the transition that Origen is painting there from Alexandria and then later in Caesarea, that we are not patterning our worship on the day of death, but the day of life. Not the day of old creation and death and darkness, but new creation and life and light. That's the pattern here. And that's their understanding of what it means to bring in Sabbath. And again, we're going to go into Sabbath in just a minute. This continues to pattern itself before we get to 321. One more, Victorinus. In the creation of the world, right around, right around 300 before Constantine. The sixth day Friday is called Parasexfe. That is to say, the preparation of the kingdom. On this day also, in the account of the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ, we make either a station to God or a fast. On the seventh day, he rested from all his works. Do you see, again, the Genesis narrative is being patterned. We're not ignoring that. See, this is what the Sabbatarians are accusing us of doing, that we are ignoring the creation narrative and the instruction of the Jews based on that creation narrative. We are not. We're actually saying that the, the Mosaic law is incomplete that it was shadowing a better thing and that the better thing came at Christ's resurrection. I carry on. On the seventh day, he rested from all his works. He blessed it and sanctified it. On the former day, we are accustomed to fast rigorously. That on the Lord's day, here it is, we may go forth to our bread with giving it of thanks. There's the breaking the bread concept. Again, we're back in Acts 2, Acts 20. And let it become a so let Friday become a rigorous fast, lest we should appear to observe any Sabbath with the Jews, which Sabbath he Christ in his body abolished. In his body, what do they mean by that? He's talking about the resurrection. We're not patterning ourselves after the fasting process of preparation. We're not fasting and preparing a preparation for ourselves when it comes to Sabbathing and resting. That's not the pattern we do anymore. Our pattern has progressed. Why? Because it's been fulfilled. Again, these things were shadows. The fasting were shadows. The days were shadows of the new creation of the body by the resurrection of Jesus into newness of life and into resurrection theology. So all of this is before Constantine changed. So no, Constantine did not change anything, folks. None of it. They were doing this before Constantine. So the idea that 321, in March of 321, Constantine created this new idea that we should start worshiping on Sunday to honor the sun god. If that was Constantine's intention, that was his and his alone. That was not the pattern of the church from the first century scriptures to the first century documents of the church 
and to the second and third centuries that we had before. The patterns are clear of what the Lord's Day meant, what's going on, how they worshiped, so forth and so on. Now, let's talk about rest. Let's talk about Sabbath. You say, well, Stephen, I mean, it's in the moral law. Now, we gave hints all through here of, of how they patterned themselves. We gave hints all through here about the church and its usage of Sabbath and the idea of darkness and death, and they were celebrating life and light. But is there more to that? Yeah, I think there is. I think those are good arguments. I think they are actually clear and succinct to what the gospel message is. But was Sabbath patterning something a little bit more? Yeah, I, I think so. The writer of Hebrews was enamored with the idea of entering into the rest in chapters three and four, and that the Jews missed his rest, the Sabbath. And it's not because they weren't keeping it. It's not because they weren't following Saturday law. It's because they missed the point, and that is that Sabbath was meant to be found in a person. So kind of taking this theology in chapter four of Hebrews, I kind of want to go over some of the concepts here that the writer is demonstrating to us about those who did not enter into his rest. They missed it. They, they, they lost the opportunity to enjoy the benefit of rest. And so I want to kind of take a second to acknowledge the teaching. In verses eight through nine, the writer is not talking about the promised land. I mean, it's pretty clear up to this point because this whole time he's saying they did not enter his rest. They did not enter his rest. Seems like he's talking about the promised land. But by definition, as you continue all the way through this, he's clearly not talking about the fundamental properties. So he's, again, saying that the pattern is a shadow of a greater thing, greater than the land itself. And the question is, well, why is that the case? How do we know that in chapter four, when he says they did not enter into his rest, although yes, the implication of that is the promised land, but that's not the definitive ultimate purpose. How do we know that? Well, because while David was writing Psalm 95, he's already in the promised land. So he quotes in verse number seven going into today focusing on the idea of today after such a long time it has been said today if you will not harden uh if you will hear his voice not harden your hearts so when we look at the pattern here of psalm 95 david was already in the promised land and saying and warning his people don't do what they did, because if you do what they did, you will also not enter into his rest. Well, how could David say that? They're already in the promised land. Because the rest was beyond the land. Since that is true, there presently remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God today. And that's what he's saying. He says it in verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Still, a rest that we all need to enter. We can complete God's 
appointed work. I mean, we could be a part of God accomplishing his work in accordance to Sabbath, if you would, and enjoy the eternal rest today. I mean, the emphasis in the section is today, not future, not, oh, well, when we get to that final shore on the other side of the Jordan, you know, I mean, that that's, that's bad theology beyond bad theology when it comes to the idea of heaven and, and things to begin with. But what he's saying is, is we can enter into God's rest now while living. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, there's labor. Yes, there's persecution. Yes, there's pain and difficulty. But we can experience God's rest in perseverance. And that we should strive, and he encourages them to do that. Strive and be intentional and zealously persevere to enter into God's rest. Well, the question is how and why? Because we have the word of God that teaches it's quick, it's active, it's ongoing, it's truth never changes. It has the ability to reach the deepest and darkest places of the heart. It brings light to evil inside of us so that we can repent. Remember up into this point, Hebrews this whole time is pointing the idea that the, the sin is the problem. The heart is the problem. Do not harden your heart. And if you begin to, we have the word of God that is able to penetrate the hardness of hearts. The scripture knows us better than we know ourselves is the idea. And that we're going to give an account on the basis of these things. And then he goes on to encourage us that we have a great high priest who we could take our infirmities, we could take our weaknesses and come boldly to the throne. Since then, we have this great high priest, which takes us back to chapter three, verse one through six, because he kind of went on a little rant. Now he's bringing it back to the high priest concept of chapter three, who's pastor of the heavens, which is the division between God and man. We have the priest, he's Jesus, the son of God. There's two titles here, one of his humanity, one of his divine nature. So let us hold fast our confession. Why? Because we have a high priest who's sympathetic. He represents us. He felt what we feel. He knows physical weakness and he understands perseverance through obedience. He's tempted. He was tempted in just the same manners that we were, yet he did not sin. So we are invited to come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy in time of need. We are invited to come in and experience rest for the soul because we have been forgiven of sin. And even if we commit sin, we have a sympathetic high priest. And we have the word of God that prevents and deteriorates any ounce of hardening in the heart. We have all that we need to enjoy and rest in God today. The Sabbath rest was never about a particular day on a calendar. It wasn't even about the promised land. That's the point. Rest was coming to the high priest who sympathetically feels our weaknesses and exhaustion. And brings mercy, healing, forgiveness, and rest in time of need.
He is our Sabbath. He is our place of rest. Jesus even said, come unto me, all you who are burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Take my yoke. It's easy. It's light. Learn of me. I'm meek. I'm lowly of heart. He invites us to enter into that rest. We acknowledge and we observe Sabbath by acknowledging the high priest and by coming to him with burden and exhaustion and sin and brokenness and enter into the rest of the high priest who has carried our burdens and sins for us and offers us mercy in time of need, help in time of need. He is the place of rest. It's not a day. It's not a landmark. It's a person. And he carried all of that through his death. But he gave hope, which is the term we've been talking about, life, newness, perseverance, ability, activity on the first day of the week through the resurrection of Jesus. See, he couldn't be the great high priest if he didn't overcome all of the obstacles of darkness and death and sin and decay and weakness and brokenness had he not gone through it himself, but beat it by resurrecting from the dead. See, Sabbath is incomplete without a resurrection. Sabbath is only the bearing of the things of weakness. It is the exhaustion and the tiredness that deserves the acknowledgement of God, but that he would give hope that Sabbath would end and new life would begin. So we honor the Sabbath by going to the high priest. We haven't forgotten the Sabbath. We rest in our high priest while embracing the new life he's given us in the resurrection, first day of the week. I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that we should not acknowledge the idea and the concept of rest. It is healthy for our bodies to rest. Six days is a man work. On the seventh, he rests. I think we ought to take time for our bodies to rest. It's unhealthy. Yes, we're patterning ourselves after God who rested. And I, by the way, I, I theologically, and those that have heard me do an interview with Dr. Hugh Ross, the astrophysicist who's been on our program, we talked about this. I believe we're still in the rest. I think we're still in the seventh day of creation. I believe the new creation is the eighth day when he comes back, and creates a new heaven, and new earth. And that's why today... As the writer of Psalms 90, Psalm 95 said, David, enter in his rest today. It's still active. The writer of Hebrews, after David, says, hey, enter into the rest today. Because the rest, the Sabbath, we are in the Sabbath. We are in his rest. We are in his mercy as a high priest who gives rest for the soul of the weary. Awaiting, if you would, the eighth day the resurrection of the dead and newness of life and the restoration of the universe and the newness of the new heavens and new earth. We are Sabbathing, waiting for the new creation as Jesus in the grave and we through his death in like manner waiting for the resurrection of new hope and life on the eighth, the first day of the week, Sunday. So yes, we acknowledge Sabbath. We don't ignore it. We're not, we're not like, oh, well, 
we only keep nine of the 10 commandments, so to speak. No, we acknowledge those commandments for what they were. And we acknowledge the Sabbath for what it was in light of what the writer of Hebrews taught us. And we follow the pattern of the apostles who worship Christ on the first day of the week because they celebrated life, not death, light, not darkness, newness, not oldness, restoration, not brokenness. That's what we see all through these patterns in the epistles here, looking at Paul, looking at Luke and the instructions that were going on at the time of Acts. When we look at Paul's instruction to the Corinthians and the Galatians, we're looking at the understanding of Sabbath through the eyes of the writer of Hebrews. We're looking at all of these things through the early patristics and writers had nothing to do with 321 AD and, and, and what happened with Constantine in March and the sun God. Oh, he did stuff like that, but it had nothing to do with what the church was already actively doing in the world. So I reject Sabbatarian theology. I don't think it works. It doesn't work in an argument. It doesn't work historically, nor does it work biblically. So yes, when did the early church gather? Sabbath or Sunday? Sunday. They most certainly gathered Sunday. And all the evidence is there to point to those things. Well, once again, thanks for tuning into this special program. Hopefully it was something of education and you learned something about why we meet on Sunday. If you did not know these things before, and it'll also give you concepts, statements, and understanding of how to talk to those who reject your understanding of Sabbath. Grace and peace to you. Thanks for tuning.